Welcome back to this special season of the Dyson House podcast on global health security. I'm James Kafke with the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, speculation has been rampant on how it could, and whether it would, alter the way states interact, or perhaps even wind back the clock on globalisation. On today's double episode, I'll be speaking in succession to two experts, Dr. Angel Alcalde and Dr. Daniel McCarthy, on the pandemic and first, its intersections with globalisation, and then, how it relates to international relations as a discipline. Hi, Angel. Thank you for joining me today. Hello, James. Thank you for inviting me. So before we get into it, I was wondering if you could give an introduction to your work and academic background. Sure. Well, my name is Angel Alcalde, and I am a lecturer in history at the University of Melbourne. And I obtained my PhD in history and civilization from the European University Institute in, in Florence, Italy. And I specialize in 20th century European history, um, mostly focused on the history of war, the history of fascism and extreme right politics. But I have done a lot of work also on transnational history, international history. I have a project on the global history of the war experience and war veterans. And I'm interested in general in international, transnational and global approaches to history. I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your recent article published by the University of Melbourne Pursuit, Will COVID-19 and Globalisation? Yes. So this article is a synthesis of a a longer, bigger article published in Spanish in a magazine called Es Global, which publishes articles on current affairs from a global perspective. And I wrote this article with uh, my colleague, Jose Escribano, who is a global historian of the early modern period. So I have collaborated in other occasions with this colleague, and we discussed some of the current and recent articles published in media during the COVID-19 crisis about how COVID-19 will likely have an impact on the globalization process. And some of these articles argued very strongly that in the near future, we're going to see an end of the globalization process and a process of deglobalization. So in this article, um, we uh, examined critically these uh, arguments and we look at how actually global historians have explained the globalization process and we explain how, considering how the history of globalization is, that it's very extremely unlikely, if not impossible, that an event like the pandemic of COVID-19 will end the globalization process or revert this globalization process. So uh, our opinion is that this process of deglobalization is a rather unhistorical notion, which cannot be uh, proved because it's a projection towards the future of interpretations of the present and the reality of the uh, complex processes of globalization 
do not justify these kind of predictions. Mm. So when you discuss globalization, what set of processes comes to your mind when you refer to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question because probably one of the key reasons of disagreements on whether uh, the COVID-19 crisis will lead to a change in globalization is the working definitions of scholars regarding globalization or the globalization process or the global condition, etc. So it's, it's true that in general, in, in the public, in the media, there is an understanding of globalization as something related to the global economic system. So globalization is understood as world trade relations and connections. So it's a, an exclusively economic understanding of globalization. However, it's while it's true that this notion of globalization was uh, the, the understanding that led to historical debates about globalization since the 1980s, 1990s, historians have found out that globalization is a much more complex process. It's not possible to isolate these economic processes, trade, global financial markets, etc., from all the dimensions of globalization, the social dimension of globalization characterized by migrations, for example, interconnections between scientists, experts across borders, or cultural globalization, or environmental globalization, biological globalization. All these different aspects of the process of globalization are highly interrelated. And if we consider this more complex definition of what globalization is, it's extremely unlikely that an event such as the COVID-19 crisis will stop or revert the process of globalization. So that's one, one of the main reasons for, for disagreement. That's how historians understand the globalization process as opposed to uh, current economists and some social scientists also. Speaking of those other views, at the beginning of your article, you talk about Professor John Gray and his proclamation that the era of peak globalization is over because of COVID-19. And throughout our discussion thus far, you've made reference to other people with uh, similar views. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on why those people seem to think that globalization is over. Good question, because, well, I think these predictions and in general predictions about the future rather reflect the fears or the wishes of the intellectuals making those predictions. So John Gray uh, published this article in the New Statesman uh, making these points about COVID-19 as a Hobbesian test for humanity and Gray uh, argues that the, as a consequence the European Union will decline and the world order will fall apart, etc. This author, for example, made similar predictions 
some time ago, already before the COVID-19 crisis. And it seems that this kind of dire predictions, pessimistic visions of the future, sometimes I present it as a warning rather than as an argument based on facts and analysis. Inevitably, any prediction about the future is short-sighted. So we cannot scientifically say what's going to happen in five, ten years' time. It's impossible to predict the future. So we can think about the impacts that the COVID-19 crisis is having and analyze those impacts. And in the light of the past, we can somehow try to discern what are some of the likely lines of development in in terms of globalization, international uh, relations, etc. There were there have been many other occasions where intellectuals and scholars had tried to predict future developments. And one of the example that we wrote in in the article is the prediction of Francis G, uh, Fukuyama about the end of history in 1989. 1990, where after the the end of the Cold War, groups of intellectuals in the mainly in the United States believed that history will just continue as a, as the triumph of liberal liberalism, liberal democracy, capitalism, and this will end to a yeah, happy, some sort of happy world. Of course, this, this vision of the future, this prediction made in 1989, proved wrong very, very quickly. So not only uh, in the 1990s, there were many catastrophes uh, like the war in Yugoslavia, genocides, etc. Also in the early 21st century, a new historical period opened with the uh, global war against terrorism conducted by the United States, later with the comeback of nationalism, etc. So uh, the point is that this kind of this, this kind of predictions about the future are always inevitably wrong in the end. In terms of these types of predictions, were there any instances that you discovered in your research in which people had predicted a similar likely decline or collapse of globalization or interconnectedness? Well, globalization, as it is predominantly understood today, is a very recent phenomenon. So there have been predictions on the on the opposite opposite sense, meaning that intellectuals predicted that this process will continue, that it was somehow inevitable. Even, for example, in the 19th century, Marx already perceived this process towards increasing interdependence between different parts of the world, integration in a global economic system, and always in the different crisis of capitalism, like for example in the 1930s, people envisioned 
new models of society, which sometimes led to further catastrophes. I'm thinking of, for example, the uh, new model of society proposed by totalitarianism, or in particular fascism, which, considering the problems caused by the global economic system, particularly after 1929 with, with the crisis with the financial crisis of 1929, but even before with the impact of the First World War. So these these radical groups tried to develop new models of society. Corporatism was the model proposed by fascist regimes and authoritarian regimes. And it's interesting to see how also these new models of society and the economy also circulated across borders. So the model of corporatism developed in fascist Italy was taken up by all the authoritarian regimes in the 1920s, in in Spain, in Brazil, and in many other places. And also, it was a model that the Nazis in Germany tried to implement and develop this model into something a bit different, and they had their own perception of the globe, so the world, as a unit that was somehow divided between strong nations. So in the end, even these perceptions, these understandings of a new world system, even if they didn't believe in in inter- international collaboration or in international institutions, they still thought about the world in terms of globality. So in in a sense, this was also a model of globalization. Do you think it would be fair to characterize globalization as a force which is too powerful to be stopped? Or is your critique more focused around how the current predictions and fear-mongering aren't rooted in anything rather than them necessarily being wrong. Yeah, well, it's important to note that globalization is not a natural phenomenon in itself. So it doesn't happen without the agency of humans, without the direct intervention of policymakers, social movements, etc., that's important to consider, even though there is a natural and biological aspect of globalization that we can see even today in the COVID-19 crisis. We are dealing with a virus that will not recognize borders. We can try harder to stop viruses at the borders, but viruses and all the, like all, any other natural phenomenon will not by itself stop at borders. So that said, it's important to to consider that globalization is also made of specific policies. Okay, so globalization is a a political phenomenon, not not only an economic phenomenon, but also a political one. It's also difficult to stop social uh, phenomena like migration through political means or through economic measures. So there are certain aspects related to human agency that cannot be controlled. 
Okay. It's extremely difficult to establish a strong control of these processes. Governments, of course, sometimes try to use a strong hand to manipulate or stop or revert such processes, but this sometimes leads to conflict, violence, tensions, international tensions, internal tensions between between uh, within countries, etc. So, yeah, it, it's possible to that different powers, different countries will try to advance towards a model of society in which global interconnection is made less relevant. However, this will come at a cost. This has happened already. This happened in the interwar period where there was an actual contraction of international trade, for example, but this only led to increased international tensions, rivalries, and as a consequence, uh, violence, war, etc. So it's it's naive, in my view, to try to see globalization as a process that either is something natural, unstoppable, that we cannot do anything about it, or the other extreme, that globalization is just the product of the decisions of a number of elites, individuals with power, with economic influence, whatever. Both extremes are wrong. Globalization is a much more complex process that needs to be addressed through specific policies and not simply by uh, discourses about the inevitability or the manipulation of this process. Are there any historical examples that you can look at of things like COVID-19, disasters interacting with globalization in the future? Yeah, there, there are historical examples of disasters that had to do with globalization and had an impact on globalization as a process. And we can look at the history of other pandemics, for example, in the 14th century, the bubonic plague, which decimated the European population. This is an example of how even witnesses of the time thought and, and realized that more or less like the uh, current pandemic, uh, this plague had come through the Silk Roads and other points of, of, of connection between the Far East and Europe. So people was aware of the uh, virus, the viruses and diseases brought through commercial connection. But at the same time, people of that time were not willing to renounce to all the pleasures and advantages that this early globalization provided. So people did not renounce to interconnection because of a pandemic partially provoked or magnified by globalization. And there are other examples with pandemics. If we see the effects of biological globalization as a consequence of the discovery 
of the Americas, or the rather conquest of the Americas, where uh, millions of human we beings were wiped out of the Americas because of these diseases, but did not this did not stop globalization. In fact, for example, the colonizers to replace the loss of the, this workforce of the native populations, indigenous populations in these in the Americas, the, uh, hundreds of, of of thousands probably of African peoples and people from all the regions of the world were brought to the Americas. Thus, uh, increasing human interconnection around the world. If we look at them uh, at more modern periods, also the world wars, which are usually seen as a catastrophe that disrupted the flows of migration, that interrupted the normal flows of world trade, etc. That's true, but the world wars, particularly the Second World War, provoked huge movements of population between different continents not only soldiers traveled to faraway regions and were able to know other parts of the world, other cultures, etc. Refugees also crossed borders and changed continents. Technology developed during war, technology that was intended to destroy, for example, planes to bomb German cities, the B-29, for example. These advancements in technology were reused later, were used for peaceful purposes. And there was a conscience at the time that this advancement in technology, in communication, aviation, telecommunications, etc., will be useful later for in a peaceful world to increase peaceful global interrelations. So uh, the bottom line is that the, the relationship between catastrophe and globalization is very complex. Catastrophe does not need to stop or revert globalization process. It may change it. It may change the structure of uh, the global condition. Maybe some powers will be more influential in shaping the nature of globalization in the future. But this will not mean that globalization is going to disappear because predictions about the end of globalization are rather appropriating the meaning of globalization. The final question I have planned to ask you for today is, do you think there are any sort of redeeming elements of this fear-mongering or of the article by John Gray, do you think any of it sort of can be justified in terms of hypothesizing or that there would be significant changes from COVID? Or do you think it's probably too early to tell? We can contribute to make the understanding of globalization something more more complex. So we need to, to try that the public understands the complexity of globalization as a historical process that is not either bad or good by itself. That's not the question. It can be bad, it can be good. Globalization is in also, in a sense, 
uh, a situation. It's something that de describes the nature of the world, humanity, in this moment of history. And globalization has been a very long historical process. Uh, we need to, the public needs to understand that we can talk about globalization since antiquity when, or even earlier in prehistoric uh, times, where simply the world was entirely settled by humans. Some authors will argue that globalization starts when human settlers reach Patagonia in the Americas. So it's extremely difficult also to decide or to identify a moment in history when globalization started, because there are people who argue that it started in the early modern period with the so-called discovery of the Americas, or in the 19th century with the colonial empires. And there are people who argue that it's even later when globalization starts. So there is no agreement among historians about when globalization started. So it's futile in a sense. It's, it's not productive to try to predict when globalization is going to end. So we need to depolitize, to devoid of all this ideological baggage and political baggage that the concept of globalization currently has so that people can really understand what are the real options that the different nation states have, the international community, uh, what are the options that the international community has to tackle problems posed by the reality of globalization, how to um, facilitate the, the resolution of global threats, global problems, global health, environment, etc., with the concerns of nation states. So they are not opposed sets of interests. So globalization affects every country in the world and the politics of globalization need to be understood by the public in the different countries as something that is going to affect their lives, whether they like it or not. Excellent. Thank you very much, Angel, for your insights today. It's been great. Thank, thank you for having me. Hi, Daniel, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and your work history. Well, yeah, sure thing. No problem at all. So I'm a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Melbourne in the School of Social and Political Sciences. And so in that role, uh, I undertake a lot of international relations theory teaching, which is, I guess, my primary area of interest. I've traditionally been focused on information technology and how information technology exists as a particular form of power in international relations and how we should go about kind of theorizing what information technology looks like as a particular form of power in international relations. And then I guess over the past 12 months or so, I've started moving to look a little bit more at what are called socio-technical imaginaries of innovation. 
And so what that is, is that is the different ways in which foreign policy actors imagine how innovation, uh, technological innovation takes place, how it should take place, and what some of the impacts are of these sociological and normative imaginaries on their actual policy practices. Um, And I look at that primarily by looking at uh, American foreign policy and the way in which technological innovation is articulated in American national security policy. So somewhat unsurprisingly, the topic on everyone's lips right now is COVID-19 or or pandemics. And personally, I see a lot of interesting intersects with what's happening right now in terms of intergovernmental relationships and trade, globalization, and obviously international relations. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could tell me from your perspective as an expert, what you thought the most interesting or notable things happening right now to IR because of the recent pandemic were. Okay, so there are a couple of things I think that are going on in terms of um, international relations and the way in which we're at the very least going to have to start to think through what the COVID crisis has meant for international relations as a discipline. And I would think about those first in theoretical terms, because again, as mentioned, that's what I do. And then I would think about them in primary, in primarily empirical terms. So in theoretical terms, one of the things I think that's happening is that the COVID crisis is forcing us to continue to rethink what our ontologies of international relations look like. So normally when we've talked about international relations and we've talked about what the furniture of the world that makes up international relations looks like, is what it's composed of, right? What are the important actors or things that happen in international relations? I mean, traditionally, the discipline, for all its quite realist or national security kind of focuses, hasn't been terribly materialist, right? And so if we talk about it not being terribly materialist, what I mean there is I say that materialism is about um, a certain element of passivity that necessarily exists in human existence and the fact that human beings are material beings um, that exist within nature and natural ecosystems. And as a result of that, that natural materialist kind of process, our politics are structured in particular kinds of directions, right? There are some things we can do and some things we can't do at given historical moments in time on the basis of the fact that human beings are part of nature. We're slightly apart from nature. We, human beings have different capacities from natural actors, but we're still part of nature. International relations have traditionally been very bad at thinking about that um, and thinking about human beings being embedded within natural ecosystems or earth planetary systems. And I think one of the things that the COVID crisis will do is it will get us to continue to rethink what the ontology of international relations looks like and continue to take more seriously the presence of non-human actors, both technological systems, but also things like bacteria, things like natural ecosystems, things like the sea, right? Coral reefs, fisheries, animals, all kinds of different ways in which we could think about all these other actors who impact upon the process of international relations. So theoretically, the COVID crisis is going to force us to continue to rethink those things. And I should say, That process has already started in international relations, right? Particularly around climate change and the Anthropocene. And there's a very good book by a scholar who's at the University of the Sunshine Coast, Stephanie Fischel, on the microbial state, so that the interaction between um, microbes and processes of state making. But in general, the discipline has been rather slow to recognize these things. 
And I think increasingly the COVID crisis will force us to reconsider some of our very basic materialist foundations um, and how we think about international relations theory and the way in which human societies are structured more broadly in a much more materialist um, direction. How significant do you think that COVID-19 has been as a catalyst in that regard? Do you think it's really sped things up? Uh, So it's hard to tell at the moment because publications obviously are going to lag behind a process that's already in motion, right? So we won't see the first tranche of publications about COVID coming out, I would imagine, for another six months or so, six to eight months particularly from an international relations theory perspective, because that'll take a little bit longer to write those pieces. I think it'll just continue what is already an incipient trend, at least in some parts of the discipline. So some parts of the discipline won't be affected, right? Some parts of the discipline will just say, this is what national security is, and we don't need to talk about natural earth systems or planetary boundaries or anything like that. But other parts of the discipline that have already started to think through these issues will continue to think them through more deeply, I think, as a result of this. So... Do you think there are any other sort of major trends or things happening because of COVID in international relations? Yeah, so I think in, in theoretical terms, that was a, the big kind of, it's going to make, hopefully make the discipline a little bit more materialist, right? Take the material world more seriously. So that's the first kind of thing that I think will happen. That's the theoretical thing that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. In empirical terms, I mean, look, the I think the foremost challenge, and this is something that's combining with a number of other trends, or the foremost change, sorry, uh, combining with a number of other trends, will be the declining legitimacy of the American government and notions of American leadership in the international system. The way in which the United States government has handled the crisis has been, you know, shocking, right? Pathetic in many respects, that a country that boasts what is undoubtedly in certain parts of its society, the best best healthcare system in the world. It has to be um, in certain segments of the society. But overall, its ability to actually meet this crisis has been um, woeful, right? And you see similar processes occurring in other states who had either thought they were going to be reasserting traditional forms of leadership, like in the United Kingdom, or were going to realize a mantle of regional leadership, such as in Brazil. And all of those states are handling the crisis so poorly that you would think that in reputational terms and legitimacy terms, their ability to continue to make any kinds of claims for either regional or global leadership are going to be severely impacted. And so what you'll see, certainly for the United States, is a quickening decline, right? The continued quickening decline of American leadership globally, right? So it's a process that was already in motion. Certainly it's been sped up quite significantly by the Trump administration, although we should never uh, forget that this process actually began under the George W. Bush administration. But it's going to continue. It's going to speed up, right? We're going to continue to see a decline in American leadership globally because the United States just doesn't seem to actually have the capacity to deal with this crisis in any kind of clear and competent way. Do you think at all that the upcoming election later this year could slow down that process? It's a good question. I don't think so. I think American politics has gotten to a state now where, um, not regardless of, but I think the structural pressures within American society are at such a head now, and political conflict is so deeply entrenched now, that the notion that somehow Joe Biden will be reelected and will go back to a period in which American global leadership is more legitimate, more accepted. I I mean, I think that the horse is bolted, essentially. You can't go back to a period in which you can just simply recapture that legitimacy, right? And and those forms of soft power that give you that kind of global leadership. I don't think that's going to happen 
if, if Biden gets elected. Biden could get elected. The Senate could turn Democratic. The House could get a larger Democratic um, majority. And none of that, I think, will lead to any kind of immediate turnaround in America's global prospects. Essentially, I think what we've seen is that the emperor has no clothes, says it's the most powerful state in the world, and yet it has suffered one of the worst outbreaks of the COVID-19 crisis because it simply lacks any kind of state capacity to deal with the crisis in any kind of comprehensive way. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the way. Do you have any other structural concerns or observations regarding international relations and COVID, or do you think it's primarily those two trends? I mean, so the other thing that we could start to see happen, and I guess this ties into the issues around globalization that you initially raised, is if the crisis continues, and if it continues to have such a severe impact on normal processes of international economic exchange, so things like travel, production, tourism, so on and so forth, you could see states start to try and reverse trends towards globalization, right? You could see states start to say, okay, look, we need to have more domestic capacity to produce things for ourselves because the crisis means that this economic system whereby all of our production is transnationalized and relies on just-in-time methods of production will no longer be feasible. You could start to see stuff like that happen. I'm actually a little bit skeptical that we will see that happen. You know, I've certainly read editorials in the newspapers that suggest that this is the case, that you'll start to see more onshoring rather than offshoring of production for a number of states internationally. I'm a little bit skeptical about that, primarily because, and again, this takes us back to an example from the United States. I think it was in um, either late March or early April where Donald Trump said, okay, look, there's this plant that General Motors has that should be producing masks. And why isn't this plant actually producing masks? I'm calling out General Motors. You need to start looking after the American national interest. Let's gear up that plant to actually start producing masks because American society is going to run out of masks. We need these masks to fight the crisis. But then if you actually, you know, there were subsequently screenshots shared all across the internet about what this plant currently looks like. And it's in pieces, right? It's an absolute decay. It hasn't been used. It's not like there's infrastructure just sitting there that we can mobilize for these kinds of things. You actually need to physically build out any kind of infrastructure that you're going to have to produce food, clothing, cars, whatever kinds of goods and services you need. You actually need to physically build out an infrastructure to do that. And the process of globalization has transnationalized production to such an extent that in many cases, those infrastructures don't exist anymore. And so it isn't like, again, just like the United States won't be able to quickly turn around a ship um, that's currently drifting, it also won't be able to, the United States or whatever country we're talking about, you know, the United Kingdom, Australia, whoever we're talking about, they also won't be able to very quickly ramp up domestic production in any kind of autarkic way that will provide for their communities. Um, so that is one thing that people have talked about, that increasingly production will perhaps move away from China. People want to produce their own goods and services within their domestic societies. I can't see how that's going to happen in any long-term kind of way. Because again, the structural and technological infrastructure that we've built just simply won't allow it, at least in the short term, you know, and by the short term, I mean, in the next five to 10 years. Mm, there definitely seems to be a bit of a disconnect between the fear mongering and editorials and the hypothetical outcomes. Yeah, and again, part of this is, again, because people just 
tend not to think about infrastructure, right? They tend not to think about everything that we do in international relations is rooted in some kind of material infrastructure that we've built out over time. And it's rooted in our relationship to nature. And unless you take those things quite seriously, you can make all kinds of claims or say, you know, policymaker X wants to take production of whatever goods and services were based in China and reshore them in Canada or something like that. But you actually have to physically do that. And I don't think we're in a situation where that's going to happen. Based on the research interests you mentioned before, I was wondering whether you'd seen any interesting intersects between information technology, the crisis and international relations. Yeah, I mean, look, probably only anecdotally, right? Um, probably not in any kind of sustained way, um, which is that actually information technology has enabled us to weather the crisis in a way that has meant that precisely the kinds of systems that we're talking about that are in existence, right, these transnationalized forms of production, these different modes of uh, labor production, everything like that, that we've seen um, arise globally over the past 25 or 30 years, actually information technologies in many respects, at least anecdotally, allow these processes to continue, right? So we've actually seen less disruption to working practices rather than more disruption due to the presence of things like Zoom or whatever else it happens to be, right? So only in an anecdotal sense can we see how these infrastructures have actually allowed us to weather the crisis more effectively rather than less effectively. Moving forward, I'd be interested to know, this isn't an area that I actually do research on, but I'd be interested to know um, what the impact of social media has been on how the crisis has proceeded, right? So I'd be interested to see similar kinds of research around that we have at the moment around social media bubbles and how social media bubbles influence people's politics in different kinds of directions or maintain a kind of path dependency around people's political choices. I'd be interested to see research occurring around that and the reception of health messages. Again, because I'm interested in the United States, I'd be interested in that particularly in the United States, right? How have different bubbles meant that wearing a mask or not wearing a mask all of a sudden becomes a sign of political allegiance and where are people getting their different health information from. But I'm not aware of any kind of sustained research that's um, being undertaken on that at the moment. Regarding the United States again, in terms of magnitude, how significant do you think this has been in terms of facilitating that decline in global leadership that you spoke about? Significantly more important than the trend already going on? Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely significantly more important than the existing trend, right? If there was something that was a kind of structural or secular trend that we could see occurring, this is the kind of crisis moment through which long-term sustained change actually gets um, embedded, right? So yes, significant order of magnitude more important um, than the previous trend that we'd seen. You could shrug off the previous trend and people have, right? So that's just Trump. This is just one administration, and we don't need to think about this as impacting American power in the longer term. But actually, I mean, we have the impression, or at least I have the impression, it isn't just Trump. It is Trump, right? But it isn't just Trump. And if we reduce the way in which the United States hasn't been able to deal with this issue down to just Trump, you actually ignore the fact that, again, in basic kinds of infrastructural terms, in the basic response of Republican governors throughout the country, and just the sheer inability of the healthcare system to respond to the crisis in any kind of measured and coherent way, 
all of those issues can't be reduced down to one guy and his Twitter fingers, right? Again, what it actually shows is that the capacity of the United States and the United States government is much lower than people previously thought it was, even given previous secular trends. Okay, awesome. Thank you for joining me today. Okay. Thank you very much for, uh, yes, inviting me. I appreciate it. That concludes this double episode of the Dyson House podcast special season on global health security. We've gotten a couple of complimentary pictures regarding the reality of what COVID could do to the field of IR, although we'll know more in time. Until next time, when in our final episode, I'll be talking to Professor Stephen Cordner about forensic pathology.